welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Victor Purton. Victor is the offspring of stateless refugees from the Baltics. His early working years were spent in the law, politics, and public policy, culminating in 18 years in the Australian legislature. After politics, Victor worked as commissioner to the Americas, helping to promote foreign direct investment. He later was served as senior advisor to the Australian G20 presidency. Upon his return to Melbourne, Victor was surprised by the negativity he encountered around leadership and the increasing levels of anxiety and depression in his community. This led him to found the Australian Leadership Project and later the Center for Optimism. Today, he serves as the Chief Optimism Officer of the Center for Optimism. Welcome. So thank you, Tom. Victor, welcome to the show. And um, I'm excited to have him on the show. And I was explaining to Victor before the show started that um, a lot of things have changed in my world since I talked to him last maybe, maybe a year and a half ago. And he is the, is the Chief Optimism Officer of the Center for Optimism. And as far as I can tell you from your website, this came out of a government project originally, and then you sort of took off on it on your own. What, what was the story of how you got involved in this project of the um, Chief Optimism Officer? Yeah, so uh, back in... Um... During the global financial crisis, um, one of the state governments in Australia, the Victorian government, sent me to California and New York um, to promote foreign direct investment and exports. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful role, uh, you know, living in San Francisco on the waterfront, uh, an office in Madison Avenue. Um, we opened an office in Chicago and Washington and one in South America. And, and the reason was that Americans have this utterly positive stereotype of Australians as joyful of smiling um, of being relentless optimists and I still remember the chairman of Caterpillar saying to me you you Aussies remind me of the Americans of 100 years ago nothing is impossible Um, Governor Perry of Texas said to me we Texans are the lost tribes of Australia Um, so my work was made very easy through that positive stereotype. You know, every time we knocked on the door to tell the Australian story, it opened at chair, CEO level. And even in, in life, you know, you'd be on Route 66 in a, a diner and a, and a driver would hear the accent and say, I love that Foster's of yours, you know, the beer. And then after that, I worked for the Australian G20 presidency. So first for the treasurer, then for the prime minister and the G20, of course, is the elite economic body, you know, presidents, prime ministers, finance ministers, central bank governors. And again, there was that same stereotype that made my work easy, which was Australians, we like them, they're happy people, they're reliable people, and they're relentlessly optimistic. Then uh, I came back to Melbourne uh, to live, and I was astonished by the negativity. The, the language towards leadership in a country that is has undeniably an affluent, prosperous lifestyle, people were very negative. And the statistics were quite shocking. So optimism was on the way down. Um, optimism about the country was on the way down. 
and the number of people on antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs had doubled over 10 years. And, and, and what so period, what I- Victor, Victor, what period of time was this? What years was so this? This is really just the, the last decade. Okay. Wow. So I'm, I'm, you know, 63. So, you know, there's decades of history I could share with you. Right. But to cut the story short, so rather than complain about the people who complained, we actually <laughs> set up a private sector project called the Australian Leadership Project. Okay. And we interviewed people from Harvard and INSEAD and, and people working in factories. And at the end of the 2,500 interviews, we concluded that Australian leadership was pretty good and we were still confused by the negativity. And then my eureka moment came in 2017. I was on the final panel of the Global Integrity Summit and it was three days of misery and bad news and I changed my speech to the case for optimism and it electrified the room. Um, and my, my eureka moment was, it was not the problem of leadership, it was the fog of pessimism. And Helen Clark, who was then the head of the UN, United Nations Development Program, the former New Zealand Prime Minister, said, Victor, turn that into a book and I will endorse it, which I did and she did. Um, and that's really been the last now four years, the Centre for Optimism and its intense work asking individual people what makes them optimistic. So we're not like Bill Gates or the like telling you, you should be optimistic because the world is better. But right. every person, as you know, because you do such wonderful personalized medicine, David, you know that everyone's source of optimism is different. Right, right. So what I want to do, we're going to do two podcasts here. And the second one, I want to really dig into what you're actually doing and how you the effect you've had on your population, et cetera. But what I want to jump into first is sort of the healing power of optimism. And what's become into my attention that I did not know when I talked to you a couple of years ago was the neuroscience behind optimism. So it turns out in this changing in the last six weeks that, that I now understand there's two parts to healing. So the bottom line is the essence of all chronic disease, mental and physical, is sustained exposure to threat physiology or fight or flight. So you're in this threat defensive state for a long period of time. You just get worn out. You burn out. And the essence of healing chronic disease, mental and physical, is minimizing time in fight or flight and increasing time in safety. So it turns out there's two parts to healing. One is learning tools to dis dispassionately, empirically process anxiety and anger, which are automatic survival responses. You have no control over them. And then the other part is nurturing joy or optimism or hope. So, but they're linked. In other words, you can't use optimism to cover up anger. You can let, you can process your anger and then nurture joy, but they're, they're very distinct skill sets. And the healing actually occurs from nurturing joy and optimism. But you, again, you can't nurture that until you process the anger and the anxiety. So I'll, Obviously, we're here to listen to you, but I'll just finish my little sermon here on saying that anxiety and anger, they're automatic hardwired survival responses. They are one million times stronger than the conscious brain. They are the gift of life. You would not be alive without these things. You can't control them. You have no control. You have no say over this reaction. It's automatic hardwired. It's just there. But Bruce Lipton, a friend of mine, pointed out really clearly that you might as well be talking to the hard drive of your computer to change your reactions, but you can reprogram them. So you learn tools to develop a working relationship with them. Again, they are a gift of life. 
is you develop this working relationship and allow them to do what they do, which is to protect you. Then your conscious brain, which is a fraction of your unconscious brain, it's a million to one ratio, gets to thrive. And the thriving is where your conscious brain starts to heal dramatically. So that's what's changed for me. We call it dynamic healing. You have the input for your circumstances. You have your nervous system or the, or the processing center. Then you have your physiology or the output. And what you're doing with optimism, you're changing the input. And it's a huge difference. So um, I don't know. I know you're busy as can be. I don't know how much you've followed my work over the last year. But if you've seen it at all, it's made a pretty radical shift into the physiology that anxiety is simply a physiological state, not psychological. It's a driving force behind all human behavior. It, it is. I mean, avoiding that unpleasant sensation. So it's just a description of your body's chemistry under fight or flight. It is not a psychological diagnosis. But as my friend Les Aria points out, that anxiety is a physiological state, but your physiological state determines your psychology. In other words, you're on fire and inflamed, you're reactive, you can't think clearly, and you're sort of a mess. And so again, that has to be processed separately. Then you have the space to actually start to nurture optimism. And I'm, I'm just curious where you, that may or may not be aligned with your current thinking. I'm just curious. I thought I just want to talk to you about this on the air and just vet this out a little bit, because I think it's a huge process for me to come around. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Paradigm? Well, I mean, what you epitomize is, is my board member, John Hagel's love of the passion of the explorer. It's the, the underpinning of optimism. So what I love about you, David, um, is you're not rigid. You're always learning. Um, you know, you, you're prepared to change. And you've come from, from being, you know, a surgeon and, you know, engaging in, in, in the physical work through to where you've come to now. So I find that very impressive. And I think you'd love this quote. Um, my favourite quote on optimism during our 20,000 interviews comes from a neuropsychiatrist, uh, Professor G at Deakin University, who says that optimism is the evidence of dreams not yet realised. Nice. Optimism is the evidence of dreams not yet realised. So I think that completely intersects with you because of course the, the older Harvard definition is that optimism is a belief that good things will happen and that right. things will work out in the end. So looking at, at, at the medical sphere and exactly what you're saying, um, the week before last, I was speaking at the heads of cardiology and heart units for the Australia and New Zealand um, hospital systems. And they're pretty much like yours, under stress, lots of COVID, people working very long hours, um, you know, not enough ambulances and the like. So it's a very stressed system. What was really interesting about what they wanted from me was that they accepted the science, you know, that if you work in, in the heart, you know that positive emotions are both protective against heart disease right. and predictive of recovery. Right. So what they wanted is exactly the, the core of the conversation that we wanted to have today, and that is the how to do it. You know, how to make yourself more habitually optimistic, how to make yourself infectiously optimistic. And, you know, for the leaders in the health sphere and others who are listening to you, um, Dominic Barton, who has just become the head of Rio Tinto, which is either the world's biggest or second biggest mining company, depending on where the share market is, when he was the head of McKinsey, shared this with me. He said, every great leader he's ever met is infectiously optimistic, 
but it's not the big man or woman speaking from the podium. It's the person who can unlock the optimism in the team from the youngest to the oldest, from the least experienced to the most experienced. And what we've found in our research is very few people are made optimistic by their leaders. Very few people are made optimistic by their work. Their optimism comes from much deeper. Um, it could be a faith in God, it could be a faith in humanity, it could be a faith in science, it could be a faith in human progress. Um, it can be life experience. You know, we're both men who've, who have experienced lots of ups and downs, but we know the sun always rises in the morning. Um, so older people tend to be more optimistic. So I think you've, you've nailed it, David. It's, it's how can we get people through that anxiety and depression and then give them those extra tools for optimism, which underpins resilience, underpins joy and underpins happiness. Well, there's a metaphor I've come up with, which uh, I could get your thoughts on is that of a bathtub with the drain wide open being anxiety and anger and the water coming in being the things in life that are good. And as long as we tend to use these good things in life to compensate for anxiety and anger, and it's a mismatch. So when you just learn the tools to lower the inflammatory response, in other words, dispassionately process anger and anxiety, which you do every day, and keep the drain plugged most of the time, then when you generate joy and optimism, why the bathtub will fill up. So that's why there, there's separate skill sets where there's lots of ways of actually calming down your body's physiology. But the mistake people make, I think, and I did this really badly, if we're using joy and optimism to compensate for anger and anxiety, that doesn't work. If you have processed the anger and anxiety as a separate skill set, very linked, then you can put all the water in the tub that you want and thrive. So when people break out of this anxiety, anger, pain circuits, when they actually start cultivating optimism, they thrive at a level they never knew was possible. And you think about this logic from a neuroplasticity standpoint, as your brain moves into these new circuits, it's moving in a long ways away from pain. It's a lot different energy than trying to fix your pain, right? So what are the habits that, that, that we emphasize? Um, is changing your greeting. Right. So in Australia, um, the typical greeting is hello, how are you? Or g'day, how are you? Very similar to France in French, in, in Austria, Germany, Ireland, and some parts of the United States and Canada. And the typical answer in Australia and in France and in Ireland is not bad or not too bad. And just a completely wasted, double negative. Um, and when you think of the hundreds of times you've said, hello, how are you? And someone said, not bad or not too bad. You need to think, what a waste of time. So we've done this in prison and we've now applied it much more widely. Um, and that is to get rid of the question, how are you? So hello or g'day or hi, pause. What's been the best thing in your day? Okay. Something I like, like that. that. And 80%, now the first time you do it, David, you're going to have to repeat it because it's like you're speaking Swahili and they don't understand Swahili. Right. And 80% of people then give you a story of optimism and joy. And they might need to think about it. You know, they'll look at you and think, oh, 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 um, and then they'll share something. Now, the other 20% who might say nothing or bloody nothing or worse you've then actually got permission to say what's wrong, ask them what's wrong. 
And you'd like this. Um, when I, I did that surgeons and cardiologists conference the other week, they said, look, would you come back in the morning to join us for a panel? And three of them, when they greeted me, said, what's been the best thing in your day? Right. And the other day I was on a tram, you know, which is our, our sort of trolley cars. And there was a bloke wearing a mask. We all have to wear masks on our trams. And uh, he was on his phone. And I very cheekily said, I hope there's some good news on your phone. And he looked at me and he looked at my eyes and my forehead. And he said, and what's been the best thing in your day? Oh, he had cool. been in one of my <laughs> workshops three weeks earlier. So I well, think I, for I, most I, I, people... I, I, I have a question for you. Well, David, my, my challenge to you is to try that for the next week and see how it goes and report back. So the question is, what's the best thing in your day? Today, it's joining you. Um, and this morning, I always get up at about five o'clock and I read my clippings on optimism. And uh, today, one of the tech leaders in Australia had said he feels utterly optimistic. Uh, because we've got a new government with a new structure. So it's reading some optimism. It's um, getting out into looking at the daffodils in my garden, even though they're blooming early. And I love um, an orange sunrise, but this morning it was quite cloudy. So uh, today um, it's joining you and it's also reading some optimism. Excellent. So uh, we have a lot to unpack in the second podcast, but I want to jump back into the neuroscience just for a second on optimism. So we talked about processing stress empirically, but the healing occurs as you move into these new circuits and cultivate them, they become very powerful because our brains are programmed with negative voices. And it's not positive thinking, but it's a positive vision. But the neuroscience I wanted to emphasize was, was out of Texas, a Dr. Dancer wrote a paper on resilience, immunity and resilience. And are you familiar with Dr. Bruce Lipton's work, The Biology of Belief? Yeah. So Bruce and I did four videos together. And what's happened is the neuroscience is completely validating his view that your belief systems make all the difference in the world on your body's function. So what Dr. Danger pointed out in this paper out of Austin, Texas, is that he reviewed a bunch of articles that there's four factors that actually flat out decrease your, immune, decrease your inflammatory response. So one of them is social connection, one is a sense of control, but also a positive outlook or attitude. The other one was hope and optimism, optimism directly lower inflammatory markers, yep. period. I mean, direct cause and effect, optimism, that outlook changes your body's inflammatory response. Then you start reversing the cycle as you lower inflammatory markers. You can think more clearly. You feel better. Then you can engage in more things that are positive and you start changing your brain. So I said this for a long time, even before I knew much about this, is that as you move into a spiritual journey, optimism, hope, good food, good wine, good friends, that's where the healing is. You're just moving away from the preterns. So one of the rules we actually ask people to do, I think you're already familiar with this, is we do not let people discuss their pain. They cannot discuss their pain, their medical care, no complaining, no criticism, or giving unasked for advice. They just can't do it. That's off the table. But I've also found out when people are in chronic pain that they probably spend 60% of their waking hours at least trying to solve the problem, talking to the pain, complaining about their pain to anybody who will listen. And so it's a massive switch. This had a tremendous effect on our treatments is that we just say, look, Victor, when you walk out the door of my office, you're never going to discuss your pain ever again. And they don't know what to do. 
Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a huge change. I mean, it's like moving from, you know, most people who've moved to a standing desk. You know, we've spent decades sitting down and typing or reading. Um, and to suddenly, you know, read that sitting, you know, there's a sitting disease and you should stand more. Um, as you do that greater amount of standing, you can feel the muscles in your thighs and your back and your neck and shoulders changing. So that habitual change is interesting. There was um, a study published this week by the Global Bank AIG, and they claimed that 95% of Australians like to be greeted and smile at strangers. Now, if you walk the streets of Melbourne, you would know it's not true. 95% of people are not greeting each other. You know, a lot of young people and older people are in their phone. Huge numbers of people have got earbuds in listening to something. There's actually quite a low level of greeting of strangers. But when I met the Dalai Lama 12 weeks ago in an audience, he said one of the secrets to his success is saying hello and smiling to everyone. So an enormous habit in improving your mindset, forgetting about pain, forgetting about discomfort, is walking down a busy street or a quiet street, and everyone you pass, whether they're looking at the phone or not, give them a smile and a cheery greeting. You know, g'day, it's a beautiful day, or g'day, hope you're having a great day. Now, I do this on busy urban streets, and it's unusual for a big bloke in a suit to, to be greeting strangers, because then I always think, oh, gosh, is that someone I know? But 80% or 90% of them, when I say, hello, what a lovely day, and I smile, they greet me back. And, and such a, a little thing, but it, particularly if you're in an environment where people are walking around or gathering, um, it's a very powerful little habit. And now, some cultures, it doesn't work. You know, I, I had someone, you know, people who come from communist countries, you know, you normally avoid eye contact. Right, but I think you'll right. find this very funny, David, um, because I coming back to Australia, you know, I'm a bit bewildered why Australians are not greeting everyone as they normally do. But we've got these teenage Ukrainian refugees in Sydney and they did an interview the other day. And what did they say? Oh, gosh, we've never met people like these Australians. They smile and say hello to everyone. And back in Ukraine, we're taught to view people with suspicion. Right. So it's a really, again, a lovely little habit just to change that greeting and that smile with strangers. And if you're doing that and engaging, talking to someone on a street corner, you're actually not going to be thinking about your pain. Absolutely. And, and as you know, if you try not to think about your pain, that makes it worse. So as you actually engage in what you want to do, yeah. that's where you leave your pain pathways behind. And it gives a cultivated learned skill. So Victor, um, we're going to go to the next podcast here, here in a minute. And we're going to talk about really some of the more details of what you just discussed. But um, how you have a website. What's the website called, Victor? Well, people Google Center for Optimism. Okay. Um, we spell it the English way, C-N-T-R-E. But if you Google Center, the American spelling. So Center for Optimism will pick us up. And there's you know, thousands of pages on the, the medical evidence in support of optimism, um, the leadership side of things, 
You can't be a good strategist unless you're an optimist. You can't be an innovator if you're not optimistic. The pessimist is ground down in what goes wrong. We believe optimism is the underpinning of, of resilience, as Viktor Frankl said in Man's Search for Meaning. You know, it's very right. hard to be resilient if you don't believe that persisting the future is going to be better. And of course, relationships, as you said, there's a, some lovely studies out of the University of Michigan that say, if you've got an optimistic spouse, um, you get many of the same protective effects. So your listeners who are uh, married to an optimist, they can switch off and go and cuddle them. Uh, those who are married to a pessimist, well, they'll need to consider what they're doing. And those who are single make, are you optimistic, part of that first date? And if they're not optimistic, make it the last date. <laughs> that's been that's that's pretty pretty uh, sage advice there. Well, Victor, thank you um, for spending some time with this. I'm I'm looking forward to our next conversation here, and um, it's got to be a lot of fun doing what you're doing. I really look forward to it, David, and I just love what you're doing too. I I just share with your listeners. Two years ago, when we last spoke, you said this to me. What gives me optimism is people beating what seems like insurmountable odds and thriving. That is where hope lies. And that is a fantastic piece of wisdom to share, David. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredibly energizing and inspiring to be around people that are just really going from no hope to all the hope in the world. It's fantastic. Well, well you know, Bill you. George, the, the leadership expert at Harvard, I asked him what makes him optimistic. He said, being surrounded by positive people. What a blessing. Cool. Excellent. Victor, thank you very much. Very enjoyable conversation. And we'll talk soon. Thanks, David. Look forward to it. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Victor Purton, for being on the show today and for sharing his insights about optimism and the habits of optimism that we can develop to make us feel more optimistic and those around us. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. In the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.